Welcome to a special bonus, rather than just a regular bonus episode of the Book Riot Podcast. Further afield than we've been of late um, with the bonus episodes outside of Rebecca and I doing half-baked ideas about nothing. This was a (laughs) half-baked idea that y'all came up with. Um, and I think knowing that the bait on this particular hook would not be hard to set on me to talk about mm-hmm. the pilot episode <laughs> of The West Wing and then maybe The West Wing writ large a little bit. And we've we've talked about maybe doing some more episodes in the future as double secret bonus episodes um, at some point as well. I want you guys to talk to me ab- about why we are doing this now. I mean, some of it's obvious, I guess, like, you know, election season, blah, blah, blah. But what's the non-obvious part about why you're talking about the West Wing right now? Yeah, I think the quick background of like Amanda and I spent the last a couple months of election season creating what we ended up referring to as the hope train, mm-hmm. which began with just texting each other like good, hopeful news, whether it was polling or, you know, mostly it was polling, let's be honest, <laughs> um, about the direction of the election and the direction of uh, politics in the country. And as the election really happened, um, Amanda spun that out into sort of daily updates on Instagram. And we ended up being like the internet's election moms, I think, where I was doing the like, everybody take some deep breaths and like drink some water and put your feet flat on the floor. And Amanda was like, and here are the statistics and this is statistically why you should not be that worried. It's all going to be fine. Get on the hope train. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the election ended in our favor, Amanda um, was able to get out of the cycle that she's been on since the 2016 election mm-hmm. of just watching The Office mm-hmm. on repeat. Yep. <laughs> so maybe that's a helpful thing for you to um, you can take a minute now and explain uh, why you were watching The Office on repeat? <laughs> um, because the it, my brain is a it, it, like a PC from the year 2003. Like it has to defrag, you know what I mean, mm. occasionally. And I ran, I just ran out of space once the 2016 election happened. And I had no room for new media that required emotional or mental buy-in or labor or really even interest for me. So I ended up watching... <laughs> The office over and over and over for four years because it was just all I could tolerate and admittedly I'm not a big TV watcher in general like TV for me at, at night is usually just something that's in the background while I'm doing something else so whatever but I couldn't even like Great Bridge Baking Show wasn't really happening like it was just all that I could stomach but mm. I, I didn't have the brain space for it so now that our great national nightmare is coming to an end <laughs> I have suddenly the ability to watch different television hmm. Yeah. So uh, shortly after the election, somewhere in that like four or five days after Amanda texted me that she was going to do a full West Wing rewatch. And I think on Saturday last week when the election was called, I rounded out the day by watching one of my favorite West Wing episodes and then just like popping in and out of clips of some of my favorite scenes. (laughs) And we were we were just texting about like how nice it was to spend time in this space again. And I was like, what if we like we're going to talk to each other about the West Wing for the entirety of the time that Amanda's rewatching it and that I'm dipping in and out. So like, why don't we just record our conversations about it and call it work? Yeah, (laughs) it's nice. It's nice to be king. Isn't it? In that regard. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. 
This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books. And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at leebardugothefamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo, for sponsoring this episode. Um... Let's talk about your first exposure to the West Wing. You guys are enough younger than me that when this came out, the age difference mattered a lot more. So this, this uh, the pilot debuted in September of 1999, which is really hard to put yourself back in that place of 21-ish years ago. This was the waning days of the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. and the show runs through 2006, which is... Obama is just elected to Senate in Illinois in 2006. So it's not really, maybe some people had a glimmer of Obama as a candidate, let alone not a a two-term beloved president. Here we are on Obama Day, um, recording Mm. on November 17th. Um, 2020. I picked up, I was first on the hold list at the library. I got that mm. email that had to come in and I was there five minutes later. So it's sitting right next, <laughs> sitting right next to me. I think it's <laughs> fascinating to think about how the West Wing informed the political hearts of many of our generation and political persuasion, even mm-hmm. up to and including how we thought about and romanticized the Obama administration to some degree. I think, you know, Obama and Michelle, um, Michelle and Barack, I should say, Obama are so polished, and Rebecca and I have talked about this a lot, that we never really feel like we get a sense of them, except that they're giving a sense that they want to give us of them, right? There's no like cracks in the, um, uh, there's no leaks in their game uh, of what they're telling us. And I find, I think I have found myself filling in the blanks, inserting the frog DNA into the dinosaur DNA, to use a Jurassic <laughs> Park reference, <laughs> of the Obama White House using West Wing DNA, that if I, do, I mm. sort of like have just imposed it on there. Um, and I think it's it's informed for ways that are both understandable and bad, but also maybe romantic and idealistic at the same time, how I hope, think about what goes on in the minds of political people that I share an affiliation with. And I think the pilot really brings that home to bear in a lot of ways that are comfortable and uncomfortable to mm-hmm. me, I should say. Um, <laughs> and I was, when this came out, um, I was a senior in college, uh, 21 years old, getting ready. I was in the act- active um, process of applying to graduate students as a liberal arts major. And I told Rebecca, this was a very bad time for someone like me, a, a white dude who <laughs> fancied himself with vaguely literary aspirations to watch a show about white people who know things that other people don't. Um, very <laughs> tough for me. And I was inclined for a lot of reasons that are cultural and personal to um, take that particular pill um, mm-hmm. And I think in hindsight, I understand, and it was inevitable, and you could have taken worse pills, and some of those pills would have been literal pills, I guess, in some ways. But I don't know. I f- the, the weight of it is sufficiently heavy, but also I feel like I sloughed off a lot of the West Wing. So to watch the pilot again especially, I felt a little bit like going back to my childhood bedroom. of like, mm. oh, yeah, but also this bed <laughs> is too small, you know, and these clothes don't fit. Mm. And, like, it's comforting, but it's foreign at the same time. So that's my... West and Michelle and I, my partner Michelle, we've watched a lot of it over time. We have our favorites. Um, I think in a lot of ways the characters have become mythical in this regard, mm-hmm. which is we we can refer to them as archetypes and you know uh, mm-hmm. and that sort of a thing. So that's where it is in my life. Let's go reverse order again. Amanda, you start mm-hmm. with where? How did you you did you first encounter it when it came out? Because you were you would have been a no. legit middle schooler or something like that. Right? <laughs> in 1999, <laughs> I was a freshman in high school. So. Mm. Um, my family did not have a lot of money. We didn't have cable or really watch television. So I did not watch The West Wing as it came out. I was also, I am not a lifelong liberal. I was very conservative mm. as a, I guess, teenager and then as a young adult until probably my mid-20s. Um, mm-hmm. So The West Wing was very much like 
not interesting to me, even after I moved out of my parents' house. Um, I mean, at that point, it had been on for several seasons. Like, you don't jump into a show no, midstream anyway, not, so I probably wouldn't have decided to anyway. Well, back um, in those days, you couldn't do, you couldn't binge watch or a marathon. Right, exactly. The, the, right. You would have to yeah. do it in reruns or something, get the cassette tape. I don't even know how you would have done it. For and me. the exact things that were appealing to you about it made me very angry. Like, mm-hmm. this is a kind of, I mean, I don't think I can say, hmm. How do I put this? It's not like a gross way. Um, this is a, a, a self-aggrandizing uh, yeah. Aaron Sorkin monument to his own brain for rich white people who think they're smarter than me because yes. I'm from the country. I'm there from the country. Go. So yeah. like I was not into it. So I first watched it after my political affiliation changed and I got a little bit older and like less of a jerk. Um, and not that Republicans are jerk. I was a jerk. Um, <laughs> and so don't email me because I'm not going to read it. I've seen the list of books she required you to have read in order to be her friend in high school. I can confirm it's super long. probably a jerk. Very long. <laughs> Amanda, someday when we have a DeLorean, we'll go back and we'll decide which of us was more insufferable at, at 16. Because <laughs> uh, it is going to be super close. That would be really hard. <laughs> so I started watching it like when it came out on Netflix and mm. I was in this moment of my life of like, oh, I missed that. Like that was a moment, yeah, you know, and I, I missed I missed a cultural moment. So I'm going to watch it. And then now that now and I'm an insufferable liberal before when I was an insufferable conservative, of course, I love it. Yeah. So, Rebecca, you're probably in the middle then between Amanda and yeah. I in that regard. Right. I was a junior in high school in 1999. And I think I was aware that the West Wing like existed. But also I I grew up in the suburbs in a relatively conservative situation. And my parents weren't watching the West Wing. And I was not like politically active at the time. So I didn't watch it. Nobody in my household was watching it live. And then I went to college and wasn't watching TV because I was doing college things. Um, So I watched it the first time also on Netflix. I think the first time that I watched it through was nine-ish years ago. Mm. Like in the, one of the ways that it was formative for me is that the early years of Book Riot and the, and my first watching of the West Wing overlapped with each other. And the sense of like the camaraderie of these Mm -hmm. people, like being like the camaraderie and the friendships and sort of the culture of like real care that they all have for each other, but also like everyone is very direct about things. overlapped with the development Mm. of like being up at like 1 a.m finishing Mm. a post for book riot and that like sense that the few of us that were around at the very beginning were like sort of in this like little contained Mm -hmm. world together fighting like fighting to like do a thing that we really believed in and wanted to have work so like that was such an interesting way to experience it the first time and then i re-watched the whole thing a couple years after that and a couple years ago, I like early in the Trump administration, I thought, oh, maybe watching the West Wing will like be comforting. No, don't do no. that. Yeah, I it, tried it that wasn't. before I landed on the West. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think I made it through maybe the first season or the first and second seasons. I didn't make it very far. Um, I got through the Shibboleth episode, I remember. Oh, um, that's a favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then it was not helping. It was just making me long even mm-hmm. more for right. this kind of decency and intelligence in politics so I, I gave it up um I don't and I'm not on board for the whole rewatch right now like I, I don't know if I'm gonna do the whole thing ever again who knows what time will do but I'm excited to go back through some of my favorite episodes and the touchstone moments I think that I that I think of and um, I think you're right Jeff that the characters become archetypes like in the text exchange that Amanda and I were having last week about getting ready to do this we were slotting our coworkers mm-hmm. into the characters of the west wing mm-hmm. yeah i'm josh so, if anyone's curious so so <laughs> much so contemporaneous with sex in the city and everyone was doing which sex in the city person are you mm-hmm. i was always mm-hmm. more of the which west wing person are you that that was much more for a variety of reasons that are both um uh, expected and gross and weird and sexist at the mm-hmm. same time but like that's where my brain was is like do which of these people would I want to be? Which of them am I not? Which of them did you want to look up to? I mean, we have, mm-hmm. it's it's not even an elephant in the room. I think we just talk about the endemic sexism of most Sorkin of the mm-hmm. early days, especially that mm-hmm. still exists. And then the near total whitewashing um, of America that happens here. I watch it with a different eye than I'd ever watched the pilot before. Actually, I don't, yeah. I don't watch the pilot that often. I don't like it um, for a lot mm. of reasons I think we can talk about. But the first person of color is Leo's maid in the background, which I never noticed because I've never mm-hmm. watched on a big enough TV that I did now to see mm-hmm. in the background. Um, we get some black people 
in like the the Roosevelt room around the table, um, and we get Kathy, um, who's mm-hmm. Asian American, who is um, Sam's assistant. We don't even have Charlie yet, notably. Right. Um, we don't have a lot of the people that I think maybe make the show even better than it is. I think we get the core of it, but the the lens of race. And sexuality, there's some low-key homophobia that happens in a particular Mm -hmm. conversation, too, were unfortunately of its time for liberal Democrats like me. I'll I'll say that, I guess. Yeah, and and it's still more diverse than the Trump administration was. I (laughs) I think that's a great point. And even then, I think it was more diverse than the Clinton administration. Like, it was more aspirational in ways that even the the liberal Democrat in office weren't at the same time. My 2020 lens on the pilot was this is such an interesting mix of ideas that are still really yeah, progressive right. or relatively progressive today. Like yeah, Sam, and now just to jump into plot, like Sam being fine with the fact that the woman he went home with turns out to be a sex worker. Right. Like that, you know, other than worried about what's going to happen. Only a PR problem, career. not a personal moral it, Right. It's right. only a yeah. PR problem. It's not a personal issue. And like they're, you know, she's doing wake and bake. Like <laughs> right. there's some <laughs> very progressive stuff, especially for 1990 that Sorkin is like trying to normalize and then there is also the this is water stuff mm-hmm. of just endemic sexism and whitewashing mm-hmm. of whitewashing of everything really but whitewashing of um what America looked like at the time but I I can't remember if it was on um, a slack group that we have with some friends or if it was a direct text to Amanda that I was like I'm watching this and it's 1999 and this White House is more diverse than the Trump administration yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because later we get Fitz and McNally, right, who add people of color to the Situation Room, which mm-hmm. I think until Condoleezza Rice uh, as National Security Advisor was not common, and that's in the Bush administration, of course. And I think contextualizing that way really matters because at the time it felt it felt romantic, like in a way that Star Trek is romantic, where mm-hmm. now yeah. it feels romantic in a way like mm-hmm. the Back to the Future scenes in the 50s feel romantic, right? Like yeah, it's, well, it's weird to see it from the other side of that um, romanticism meridian, event horizon. And there's some, you know, like Manic Pixie Press Girl stuff to the way that mm-hmm. CJ yeah. is, per- like CJ is the only um, high-powered woman in the cast, you know, the, it, like, high up in the administration here. And she has the press job, you know, yeah. to go out and do jazz hands and make everything smoothed over and deliver the message job. And I think a, like a 2020 redo of this would have women and people of color and ideally women of color right. having some of the serious policy-driven jobs as well. The press secretary is the emotional labor piece of the White House as mm-hmm. it's presented oh, here very much so I think it's telling in the course of the show that eventually CJ takes on Leo's role and Leo's role throughout the show I think is really I mean the 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 pedestal of competence like Leo yeah. is the person who you know Bartlett he's the one that manages and knows and figures out the, all the other cats that need herding Amanda I'd be curious to hear your reaction both as your first go round as a newly converted to the blue side, but also <laughs> on rewatch, like can't I, I found myself I found myself able to compartmentalize the stuff that feels ret- retrograde. I wonder, are you able to do it? To what degree are you able to do it? And what what if anything leaks through that you can't sort of say it was of its time and blah blah blah? What what doesn't still? What can't you put in the that was the best they knew box? I well. It's so, like, Aaron Sorkin's personal lipstick feminism is so evident from the jump. And I can't, like, not see it, Mm -hmm. uh, even if it was of its time or whatever. But it's especially evident in the way that CJ is sidelined by the male characters on the show, like, constantly. It's not just in the pilot, but, like, pretty much until she becomes Mm -hmm. the chief of staff. She's constantly having to fight to be in the room and to be recognized and to be respected. Like, I don't remember if it's in the pilot, but that when she gets into that spitting match with Josh and he calls her a shiksa feminista, Mm -hmm. he's like, oh, Mm -hmm. well, that's... Yep. (laughs) Like, I feel like Aaron Sorkin is writing that. He's having that authorial moment when you're yelling at someone in your real life who you hate and, like, you you could have said a thing to them. (laughs) Yes. Who in Aaron Sorkin's life is the shiksa feminista that he's, Mm -hmm. like, screaming about right now? Um, also the, like, the way that Mary Marsh is portrayed, that was really interesting. Mm. Right. You only get to be a hard ass if you're a a woman and a Republican. Like, only if you're the enemy do you get to be, because Ainsley, who, who, you know, comes later in the show, who is a Republican and works for the White House, is beautiful and sweet and Southern and genteel, but, like, 
Mary is this real tough as nails kind of character, and she is yeah. obviously a villain. Right. Not until we get Abby. Not until we get Abby in a real way. Do we get the someone who is given the chance to stand up and say, "Jed, you're full of shit." Right. Yeah, to yeah, everyone, yeah, yeah. you're full. Mm-hmm. And, which is one of the reasons she's such a fre- breath of fresh air. And then Amy Gardner later. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, that'd be Amy Gardner. Um, <laughs> you would not is, be Amy Gardner. <laughs> is it, it doesn't? It takes a. It's not there from the beginning. Um, and Moira Kelly, I guess, is supposed to be able to hit with them, but she just can't for whatever but, reason. I think the dialogue's well, there, but there's something about, and again, tellingly, she leaves the show and is never mentioned again, even what happened yeah. to Moira, but she I just mean, can't do I, it for whatever reason, I guess. I think this is this speaks to the Sorkin problem also. I don't know that, the, I, actually I do, I don't think they set Moira, Moira Kelly up mm. to have success. Fair. First of all, she has like, she enters the show in what looks like a scene from Clueless mm-hmm. with the top down on her convertible and that beret on her head mm-hmm. and like somehow is getting pulled no over. Yeah, and like she's getting pulled over and she's not going to hang up her phone. And then she's working for the senator that she's dating. Oh, like uh, her beat. authority, no. her authority is undermined yes. here from the get go in mm-hmm. multiple ways. Like, I, I think we don't. I think CJ comes across very serious and Sorkin wants us to take her seriously, but we don't get a woman that demands to be taken seriously and gets to be like not a villain like Mary Marsh in, until we get Abby and Amy Gardner mm-hmm. that you can be a hard ass and like, for lack of a better term, hot at the same time. <laughs> and they almost do it right. Because the first, you know, Josh is telling Leo, you know, basically introducing that she's going to be Lloyd Russell's, I guess, campaign manager. We're not really sure, but in, in that conversation, they recognize her as the best of breed sort of for what she mm-hmm. does outside of Lyman. But then they undercut that in the diner scene where it's like, you're you're dating Lloyd Russell. Like, you didn't have to do that. And I understand that structurally, what I think Sorkin was trying to do was give Josh a sparring partner, right? Someone mm-hmm. that could come in and, and be a foil on the left, right, for what the, the Bartlett administration was doing. But to see how Sorkin deployed that is telling, right? I think to Amanda's point, mm-hmm. like, or, or Rebecca's point, that they couldn't, he couldn't quite not see her as a sexual object or not quite, couldn't at all frankly um like, and even cj his her introduction she's hitting on a guy awkwardly at the, the gym the <laughs> yeah like like he can't pass the bechdel test even when the no, women are talking can't. to men that's right that's right <laughs> i'm talking to you about talking to you that's how badly they can't uh, it doesn't pass the bechdel yeah. test now having said all that or should we should we do airing of grievances is there anything else we want to get before we talk about what it is we, we talk about the West Wing, like the thing that we hold in our hearts that in, incites us to re- watch it again and talk about it again. What else do we need to talk about here before we talk about what it is that we like? What is that we carry forward? Mm. Anything? Mm, grievances. I don't. I really dislike Sam, and the more I watch it, the less I like him. And it irritates me that he's set up to run for president someday because he's awful. It was never clear to me because Jed says in that HBO Max one, right, where he's playing chess, you're going to run for president someday. I was like, really? It's Sam? I always like Sam. But like Sam, I was like... Is it because he's pretty? Like why? It must be. It must be because he's pretty. Um, Sam is sex object is a a grad school essay I would read. Yeah. It's, you know, he's the, he is the slick, like image focused one. Like Josh can't be relied on to go on TV and not fly off the handle. But can we have a moment for how well the phrase, the God you pray to is too busy being indicted for tax tax fraud fraud, has aged into 2020? Unbelievable. (laughs) That whole interaction, that whole like subplot. I just, mm. I guess that's the other part of romanticism, right, is wish fulfillment of the things you mm-hmm. wish people actually did and said in public, in pol- political life, especially if you have a particular persuasion, that not only that you say them, but that the punches actually land. I think that's one of the big right. wish fulfillment parts of the West Wing is you say the thing that you think you want to say on Twitter, and then you say it, and actually it works. It changes someone's mind. The, the biggest naivete here is that you can persuade people through ling- language gymnastics. Like Sorkin word magic can turn people around mm-hmm. on stuff, um, which I want to believe as a language person, but also through bitter tears have learned the limits of that particular mode <laughs> And it's of so interesting politicking. that when Josh is like, or not Josh, when Leo is talking to Josh about this situation and he says something like, 
Josh, we need these people. Yeah. It's so funny to think about now because the Democratic Party in zero ways needs the evangelical Christian community and has somehow even set it up as like, that's almost the division in the country right now. It's not necessarily the GOP versus the DNC. It's the DNC versus evangelical America. Mm -hmm. And the idea that a Democrat would go on TV and get into any kind of trouble for saying shit about evangelicals (laughs) is nonsense right now. And that's, it's so weird. Yeah. I, I do, for all the romanticism around it, I do like the moments where Sorkin seems to have like some self-awareness mm-hmm. about th- that there are problems on the side of Democrats as well. And I love the moment where um, where Leo is walking with Caldwell, yeah, I think, Al and Caldwell. he says every... Uh, yeah, Al Caldwell says, uh, every group has plenty of demons, and Leo says, you don't have to tell me, Reverend, I'm a member of the Democratic <laughs> Party. <laughs> it, it's hard to remember now, though, that in, in 1999, at the end of the Clinton administration, for for reasons that were legitimate and, and some that weren't, the Democratic Clinton White House was seen as a pit of villainy between um, what we now, I think, especially I will say, know to be sexual um, mm-hmm. misconduct, misconduct. On, on the part of President Clinton, um, and then all the other, his whatever extramarital affairs philandering whatever you say he did but then there was also other stuff within the white i mean again it's politics so no one is clean we saw in primary colors i think came out around a little bit later it's hard to remember now that at this point bush coming in in 2000 was seen as draining the swamp right Mm -hmm. and this was a the american president in the west wing was seen as sort of um what if we could just flush out the gutters of democratic politics as we see it, what would you be remained with? Well, you'd be remained with a PhD from Wisconsin, who's a family man, <laughs> who a breath, not only is there no breath of sexual impropriety on Jed Bartlett, but his sexual relationship with Abby over time is highlighted over and mm-hmm. over again mm-hmm. um, to take away any suspicion uh, of what sort of the, the miasma of Clintonian infidelity. Um, short title. Um, <laughs> There's a phrase. Uh, so I, I think that's hard Yuck. to remember now of how much it was, on the Democratic side, not, re, not not sort of wish fulfillment about what if the Republicans would in charge, but what if we did it right in the Clinton White House, or, yeah. or how could have we done it better, or right um, mm-hmm. to some degree? Which do you guys do you guys feel that at all now, or is it all through the lens of Obama and Trump at this point when you're watching it? I was too young for yeah, the Clinton administration. Yeah, I, f- I figured. Yeah, to make yeah. much. Of yeah, it. it and it it figured into my like cultural experience as being aware of what was happening mm-hmm. in the Clinton White House, but I I wasn't an adult yeah. <laughs> when it was happening and I wasn't thinking about politics in that way. So I had not watched Sorkin through that lens of, of commentary on the Clinton White House, which of course it was um, at the time or wish fulfillment about what if it had been done mm-hmm. right. There's, yeah, that's an, it's an interesting way to think about it. Um, it was nice to see, and I think this puts me on the hope train, mm. like mostly mostly civil interactions between people across the aisles. Like the actual meeting where th- that they have with Mary Marsh and Al Caldwell does not go well because it, like, shockingly, she is anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And they, mm-hmm. they yell at each other, but there's a good moment of anybody willing to step, when Josh is apologizing, anybody willing to step up and debate ideas deserves better than a political punchline. And, like, I would like to live in that world yeah. like I, I would like to live in the world where democrats and republicans and people from other parties are are actually just talking about ideas and debating the best solutions to the problems that this country faces rather than shouting each other down and calling each other names which as we've seen for the last four years is not productive on either side mm. and so that was it like that's what wish fulfillment in this episode feels like to me the most is um wow what what if we could be in that place and can we get back to a place that resembles something of like actually trying to find solutions and some sort of coalition building and not this obsessive divisiveness. Hmm. Yeah. The, where I am right now is dunk city USA on Republicans every time I could ever think of doing it. And it was, I, I did find that seen meaningful too because they do have respect for Al Caldwell who is sort of a Billy Graham-ish kind of figure I think is mm-hmm. supposed to be mm-hmm. to some degree yeah. and even later in other series of the show Sorkin and then later Tommy Shlami and other people who took over for Sorkin try to find moments um, maybe the biggest wish fulfillment one is the um, William Fickner Glenn Close double Supreme Court oh nomination mm. yeah. um, 
which no, but also I get what you're trying to do uh, in that <laughs> moment. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but like they, they, they do hold they do hold some space more than my generosity probably would allow in this moment to hear a good faith counter to some kind of um, position, which I'm going to try to take to bear to some point too. The, the thing that struck me, Rebecca, about Toby coming back there is it the, and I think this is also such a, when you've worked with other people for a long time and done those things where you have hard things to do, there are moments where you try to compromise, like he's trying to get him on the show and do the thing to apologize. Mm-hmm. But then to, to, then to recognize when there is a line that cannot be crossed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That was a part I was especially appreciative of, of it's not all compromise and it's all, it's all, it's not all righteous indignation that you will give and give and give until you can't give anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other part of the discourse you're asking for is not just, I don't want to have all lines and sands. What if we're all on li- behind lines and sands, we can't get anywhere, but also right. we can't all be marshmallows and like give up and say, yes, you're right. And I'm so sorry. Like it's gotta be, there's gotta be some, I don't know, some resistance, well, but also an iron core, but it's also not all spikes at the same time. I yeah, guess. I think there's fundamentally there's that meeting that they're having with Mary Marsh and Al Caldwell is fundamentally a, about accountability and they go into it thinking that it's about Josh being accountable for the way that he behaved on the show and that he needs to apologize because what they were supposed to be doing is having a debate and discussing ideas and he made it personal Mm -hmm. and then when it becomes clear that Mary Marsh is making it personal and in a really gross way she has violated like she's violated the terms of a good faith conversation and you're right Toby won't stand for it and he's not empowered to auction off the bill of rights and Mm -hmm. then it becomes about holding them accountable and once the president enters and he says you know we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about anything al until you um disavow Mm -hmm. the lambs of god and you separate yourself from these extreme christian groups that are doing literal violence and harm like that's accountability also and i i do think that's part of it like it's not just compromise and squishiness like we're not going to hold hands and sing but maybe we could all like stand in the same room together and have a conversation and just be accountable for doing things in a good faith effort and holding each other to it. Yeah, I think that that, that scene has even just the idea that they would be in a room together. (laughs) First of all, Mm -hmm. the idea that they would be invited to the White House uh, if it were the other way around. Like if, if, uh, if someone from the if in any of the instances where this has actually happened in the last four years, when one of the members of the Trump administration has said something god awful mm. to any you know other civilian member of the country, they they don't get invited to the White House for a make good like or, or or a peace offering that doesn't happen. So no. even just that was like oh that's kind of, that's nice. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. That was nice. That was nice. Um, but then the the recognition that those that their belief system when Bartlett comes in and is like hi this is like real cute but you're affiliated with these horrible monster people get out of my white house Mm. um Mm -hmm. that was very satisfying to me because I am I'm in the same place where Rebecca is where I think a lot of people are right now where like we have to come to grips with the fact that 70 million people voted for Donald Trump like the DNC has to do something with that information we can't just sit here behind our wall of self-righteousness and act like we are you know correct about everything and Everyone else is evil, and that's the end of the story. If that's the end of the story, then we lose every election moving forward. Like, we've got to figure something out. However, there is a point at which you have done actual harm. Get the Mm. hell out of my White House. Like, that also Mm -hmm. has to be true. And the DNC has never figured out a good way to thread that needle. And I think that watching Jeb Bartlett kind of throw the needle out the window just feels real nice. Yeah, Yeah, the moment where he's like, also, you don't even know what the first amendment or the first I am the Lord, your God. We're going to do a quick sponsor break and we'll come back because we should pick up there for a second. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, long after we are gone by Tara Shelton Harris, 
is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who has moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Albachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. Um, Bartlett. Let's talk about Bartlett. Holds up great, I think. Bartlett holds up great, frankly. All things considered, think- all things considered, Bartlett holds up great. I think so. And the watching his speech at the end, you know, mm-hmm. when they've gathered everybody in the Oval for that first big ensemble shot in the Oval Office and those moments that I think we come to love over the series and he's doing with the clothes on their back, they came mm-hmm. through a storm mm-hmm. and the ones that didn't die, like f- watching that kind of presidency and oh. then living through eight years of an Obama presidency with a president who is a wonderful orator mm-hmm. and a powerful speaker was like watching Bartlett do that rang some of those Obama bells. And then I started wondering in what ways attachment to Bartlett as a president and a speaker like Mm. that set up the left to, you know, uh, there are a million good reasons to have voted for Barack Obama and they're not all connected Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the fact that he's a great speaker. But I wondered what that, like it, it must've felt familiar in some ways if you had watched the West wing and watched Bartlett do that for years um, or watched um, Martin Sheen Mm -hmm. perform that character that way for years, then watching a candidate and then later a president who, who was a polymath in those same ways and could speak intelligently on tons Mm -hmm. of topics and weave them all together into something that's not just smart, but beautiful and compelling. It must've felt familiar. I have complicated feelings about Bartlett. Yeah, go. (laughs) I love, I love, I love him, whatever. Um, And I do think that he holds up. My complication is with this kind of the archetype of Bartlett, this idea that, um, his doctor, the one who dies, is it in the pilot when he dies or the first few episodes? It's shortly thereafter. It's, yeah. it's quick um, after. Who calls him, he makes an offhanded comment of, of, of like, sir, you're a once in a generation mind, just let them get to know you. And that's the kind of the through line of the whole show yeah. is that Bartlett and then eventually Sam are these super geniuses and that is what qualifies them for the presidency. But in reality, that doesn't, that's, that, that can't stand on its own. And because, you know, we had Woodrow Wilson, who was a super genius, but who also spent most of his time in the White House writing fan fiction about the Klan. Like, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Being a once-in-a-generation mind can only take a presidency so far. And Bartlett has the other elements, right? Like, he's got great character. He actually has compassion. He cares about people. He's not a racist. It's handy. Um, all of those things. Um, but I don't know. The fact that they just keep hammering on what a genius he is through the whole show... Well, what a genius everyone is. There's no bigger credential dropper in the history of popular entertainment than Aaron Sorkin. Who cares if Josh (laughs) Ryan's a Fulbright Scholar? We all went to Harvard. We all edited the Law Review. We all were Rhodes Scholars. We all were National Matter Scholars. We're talking about our SAT scores. And this is coming from someone who has at various points been super conscious about that stuff. Uh, It just, it's, it's. It's that's maybe the most insufferable idiosyncrasy because I don't actually think it matters, mm. but the fetishization of mm-hmm. accomplishment and credential 
is the kind of thing that a, you know, homespun, white working, whatever phrase you want to use, would rightly be furious about. I, I think would rightly be furious yeah, about that I, kind of stuff. Yeah, and I do think it... I think the concerns that they have about how smart Bartlett is and how to present that and how like how smart is he allowed to be for it to still be palatable and relatable and for him to be electable. Like, I think that still feels very relevant and it feels like a foreshadowing of the conversations that we've been having to hear for the last like really six years since about, you know, 2014 when campaigning kind of started for the 2016 election that aim to paint educated people as out of touch Mm -hmm. and that aim to paint educated people as unable to relate to less educated people or attempting to divide coastal elites from people who live in flyover country Mm -hmm. and make uh, make them feel like you you can't use your big words mm-hmm. here. You you couldn't possibly understand what life is like. And I do think that's a, a I hate that it is a thing that we have to be concerned about on the left. But I, I think it's a very real concern with who's electable. And I think like ob- sexism was a huge part of what happened in 2016. And um, not to mention the fact that Hillary won the popular vote by more than three million votes. But she was so smart Mm -hmm. and that's scary for a lot of people and i don't think it's an accident that the strategically best decision for the dnc going into this election was to run somebody who has a pretty strong dose of uncle fluffy Mm -hmm. as they Mm -hmm. you know as the staff later referred to like one of uh bartlett's folksier moments Mm -hmm. right like I, i think joe biden's a really smart guy and has a lot of great experience but He's not giving the kind of speeches that Jed Bartlett gives or the kind of speeches that Barack Obama gave that are uh, that are attractive to a highbrow kind of audience and therefore can make other kinds of audiences feel excluded or like they're being pushed aside. Mm. It, it, it's a really I, I I agree, Amanda, that the the presentation of like you're a super genius and that's why you're the president yeah. <laughs> is a problem. I think the way they tangle with how to make him approachable is really interesting because you don't need to say that bartlett's won the nobel prize for economics that he's smart when he gives spontaneous uh speeches like he does like let let the words do the work like sorkin there's a lot about the pilot i think that sorkin doesn't yet trust what he can do with language alone how fast it is how much movement there is like how many jokes there are like the the spontaneous oration bartlett gives is enough for us to know that Bartlett is smart. We don't actually be told that he's smart. I mean, talk about Manic Pixie Dream Girls. So he's a mm-hmm. grandmaster at chess. He's got a Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, I guess great in the sack, it, we're, we're supposed to be told. Um, all Like, there is nothing he can't do. He's like Superman, right? This is a... Su- what, what, if, what if Superman of brains was in the White House? But the way that Sorkin's and liberal democratic politics of the time and even today still work is the same blindness that makes this all white people is the same one that doesn't understand how credentials and whiteness and privilege go together, right? All this fetishization of credentials, if that's what you do, if that's how you keep score at this particular moment and still now, of course there aren't going to be any black people or Latinos or transgender Mm -hmm. because they don't get those kind of credentials for a whole bunch of bullshit reasons. So like, I, I think those things go together at the same time. I think it's a mistake for me, frankly, to not connect one thing I hate about the show with another thing that I'm trying to compartmentalize mm. about the show, right? And say, well, that was just the time. Um, yeah, there's so, yeah. that line that CJ says to him when they're joking about why he lost Texas. Yeah. And she said, and he says, do you know why we lost, do you know when we lost Texas? And she said, is it when you learned to speak Latin? It's in the post hoc ergo proctor hoc mm-hmm. episode. Um, and that, I remember the first time I heard that and was like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly what would make somebody lose you, mm-hmm. when you learn to speak Latin. And it's not necessarily, I mean, speaking as like a former conservative from rural America, right. it's not that smart people shouldn't be in office. It's it's like Jeff was saying, like the way that they condescend yeah. to yeah. everyone the else condescension, the that's the right word exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, to be frank, I mean, along with racism and classic, like all the kind of things that got us Donald Trump, I think a big part of it mm-hmm. is the way that rural conservatives feel condescended to by liberals in their like self-righteous Ivy League, Jeb Bartlett, Grandmaster at Chess, kind of attitudes right mm-hmm. yeah it's fair uh one or more sponsor break while we're in the middle of it and let, i kind of want to do character by character power rankings both for this episode <laughs> and, the, and the series today's episode is brought to you by tour books 
So if you are a fan of epic fantasy, if you're a fan of Scott Lynch and or Joe Abercrombie, but you want something a little different, you want a hero who's like a bit of a mess, then The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan is for you and its Academy dropout slash disgraced noble heir Lacan Cordova's life is in shambles. All he's got going for him is one, he is a card sharp of considerable skill and two, a lot of maybe potentially a little too much wine. So they're, you know, those are the positives. So when the bizarre murder of his father robs him of even the off chance of redemption, Lacan decides to make amends another way. He's going to unravel the mystery behind the killing, even if it takes him to the underbelly of Sophrona, a city of danger, secrets, and merchant princes. Finding the truth is one thing. Finding the truth and staying alive is like a whole other thing. So make sure to check out The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan on sale May 7th. And thanks again to Tor Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator, but her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the result wraiths loose in the city to kill. Now, the second book in the series, Hearts That Cut, will be on sale June 18th, 2024. This is a must read for all Greek mythology and fantasy fans. This is dripping with atmosphere, edged with danger. Threads That Bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery, faded romance, and modern myth. You won't be able to put this one down. And that comes from Alexandra Bracken, New York Times bestselling author of Lore. So make sure to pick up Threads That Bind by Kitsa Hatsapolu. And thanks again to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode. Who, so it sounds like Amanda, Sam fell down. Maybe from the beginning of your experience with the West Wing, he yes. was down towards the bottom. Who's towards the top? Uh, and it doesn't have to be, it could be in this pilot, but also as we as we reconsider the West Wing writ large, who's at the top of your, your power rankings here? Uh, Josh is my favorite character because I... I am Josh. Talk about <laughs> that. Josh, Josh, Josh's centrality to the pilot and also I think his centrality to the whole series is something I had grokked but not intellectualized until until now, I think, actually, for mm-hmm. a lot of... like The stakes here are Josh going to keep his job. Um, mm-hmm. The most interesting romantic relationship is Josh and Donna going forward. He's at the center in a lot of different ways. So talk about Josh. Um, well, speaking just from the pilot, he is one of the only characters who allows himself to be glib mm-hmm. to everyone. Like, he talks to Leo in the same way that he talks to CJ, in the same way that he talks to Toby. Like, he he does I- idolize Leo. It's obvious from the jump and also Bartlett, uh, as every character does. But he has to put on his big boy pants. And you can see him doing it. Like, you can see the actor putting on his big boy pants to be like, oh, I have to I have to talk like an adult to the president now. Um, and he, I think he takes himself the least seriously while also mm. being the most egotistical of of all the characters which like hashtag relatable content for me also personally. probably the most self-conscious about he may not be as smart as toby and sam i don't know why he yeah thinks which that, he's probably he's, not and like probably and amy gardner too frankly one of the yeah well and later. if anybody here is most likely to go on tv and insult the it's absolutely it's me <laughs> yes of course it is like of course it is mm. and then to sit in the room and laugh while everyone else like comes to my defense I would absolutely do that when he's like I didn't even have to say anything like yes that is exactly what I would do um but then I mean later in the show Charlie becomes my yeah. favorite character just the way that he he manages with a capital M every single person in that White House every single person and they never know what's happening and he mm. always does it with like the he's just so slick like yeah. ugh, he's, yeah. he's a genius he's a super genius the Charlie moments in the Hartsfields Landing episode, because Amanda and I watched that live, the um, live version of it on HBO Max on election night, mm-hmm. where he's making CJ check out the yeah. president's <laughs> schedule for the day. And there are just such great one-liners where he clearly, like, he's just in charge mm-hmm. in that way that often there is somebody in power who has, uh, like, an administrative assistant or their person who manages all their shit. And that's the person who's really in control mm-hmm. of, like, where all the things are in any given day. Yeah, it's Charlie. Charlie's mastery of the 
domain is such that when someone challenges his knowledge of their domain, like CJ does, it's a wipeout, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. he's such a master of the inner workings of the physical space of the White House and what it means to move people in and around it, around the president, that people don't see happening, right? Um, yeah. Fantastic stuff. Um, Rebecca, who, who, who fell? Who was an underwhelming revisit um. and who was maybe overwhelming? I'm always underwhelmed and like sad by how CJ is in the in the opening uh, episodes of the show. Yeah. And I love how her character develops. But I think CJ is low in the power rankings on on the pilot. Then uh, Leo comes in high for mm. me, like through the, through the whole series. And I think there's some identification stuff going on there, too. <laughs> like I there's a lot of Leo in me, maybe mm -hmm. um, like I would 100 percent call the paper because they spelled Gaddafi's name wrong in the crossword puzzle um and I love I also really love Toby and the tension that exists between Toby and Leo and Toby's like wanting it to be right and wanting to like think through all the things is a thing that I uh, love and I'm drawn to in a person but can also drive me nuts and I want the like <laughs> Jeff is this feeling mm -hmm. familiar mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I I relate to the Leo um okay, that's great. But at some point, we have to like, stop thinking about it and like do the thing. And maybe the thing involves a lot of compromise. Yeah. Um, and how he I really admire how that character is written to see all the people that are in the room and the team that's been assembled and sort of get the best out of everybody. I'm really like, I think that's what's aspirational to me about that character. And what I what's aspirational in how I want to think about myself is like, who are the people that are around me? And what what is the how well what's the language we use about management like how do you help people find the best and yes. highest use of themselves right. yep. um, and i love that about i love it about leo interesting my my following the rankings I, i'm along with sam in this regard i think i overestimate or i think rob Lowe does more with sam like his performance of sam is really wonderful like he gets mm -hmm. something about the essential nerdiness and um attraction you know, the seductiveness and nerdiness of the Sorkin milieu is, is best expressed in Sam. But there's nothing that Sam does that Toby can't do, I guess, ultimately, when it comes right down to it in mind. There's nothing that Sam does that Josh can't do. He's just another person to say Sorkin words, right? And anything that, that Sam is given is given to him by Rob Lowe and not necessarily the writing itself. For me, this may come as a surprise to no one here, especially. I am, I am probably most like Toby being mad on the plane about my phone getting in way of the plane when I've just read the, when I've already read the documentation about the plane I'm on. Like, I feel like that's a version of me that I am more than I would like to admit. Um, I feel like but if then you text and then, me But of course, then everyone the also wants to be Jed who comes in, opens the doors and reframes the discussion in a way that gets everyone to see everything in his way and everyone then shuts up and goes home and let me sit around in my sweatsuit <laughs> in my office. Like, I think those are the, two, the, the the yin and the yang of how I would like to be and versus how I, versus how I, in my best moments, I can be clarifying. In my worst moments, I can be Robert's rules of order and did you know? And why can't we do the thing? I want mm. to do this because I know more about this one detail that I'm saying matters when it really doesn't at this particular moment. I should just close my phone. Right. I'm not special. Close your phone. <laughs> I am my if we're gonna talk about aspirational Yeah. I know that I am Josh Lyman and my aspirational character is Leo. Mm. Because Leo say is, more about that, Amanda. Well, because Leo is Josh with a muzzle, like with a with a mm. filter. <laughs> And that's a good. Functional, You're thinking that's good, though. You think that's yes, good. Yes, he has a functional... <laughs> See, I don't know well, that's he has a good. Functional because he gets to be the chief of staff. <laughs> like, Josh becomes the chief of staff at the end of the show with a different president after he has learned to shut up for eight years, right? And then yeah. he becomes the chief of staff. Uh, when he finally figures out how to, like, have a romantic relationship and maybe keep your mouth shut every now and then. Like, just every now and then, you know? Uh, and, yeah. and starts to actually care about... How the things that he says makes other people feel. And Leo mm. is masterful at that. And while at the same time managing to get all of the things done. Josh does not care who he bulldozes. Which I frequently do not care who I bulldoze. To get to where I think I need to be. And Leo has the same thing. But like he cares <laughs> from the beginning of the show. About see, who he's bulldozing. I don't want to say it. But I'm going to say it anyway. I, I've come to see Leo as sort of toothless. He, he, oh really? He is the domesticated version 
of Stockard Channing's best qualities, of Jed's best qualities, of Toby's best qualities, even of CJ's best qualities, though she's not given as much free reign. He is the guy you go to when you need to just get through something, which is super valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but he says, I don't know. the character well, says that Jed muzzles him right like they have that conversation mm-hmm. I, I don't show. believe that for a second i never believed that moment i know exactly what you're talking about and you're totally right i guess i never felt that like when's leo ever mm-hmm. like righteous indignation right you know spontaneous eloquence that convinces someone it, he does it but it's always in the form of like instrumental reason rather no than... he doesn't do the spontaneous eloquence which i also don't do <laughs> and like yeah. he will, he brings people into his office and calmly threatens them until they do what he says and then they leave and he does the crossword puzzle like that's that's Leo's power move. Yeah, I think we're There's telling no. on ourselves, Amanda. You and I are telling ourselves real hard yeah. right uh-huh. now, which is fine. This is fine. Well, like, look, if we're gonna introduce Abby and Amy Gardner right. into power rankings, then I will happily say that Leo falls toothless relative to totally. both of. Totally. Oh, that. yeah. Yes. Most of the characters do. Yeah, to the two of them. Amy Gardner as chief yeah. of stash in the Bartlett White House is something I always wanted. I just to see the different mm-hmm. mix, mixology because she gets to be spiky and competent and put pieces together in a way. Um, that's mm-hmm. that's super fun. Uh, where else you want to go? What other what are, where else you want to go with this? We got five minutes. Mm. I love the mix. I think through the whole series, I love the mixture of reverence and humor mm-hmm. that they yes. have about the president. That you know, he was swerving to avoid a tree. He was unsuccessful. <laughs> um, and that Mrs. Landingham. Yeah, and when uh, when they're in the when Leo and Mrs. Landingham are in the Oval Office, and Leo's like, "He's a klutz. Your president is a geek." And Mrs. Landingham is like, "Not in the you Oval can Office. only you cannot say that in this room." You know, like there's real reverence for the office of the presidency, which is something I'm looking forward to seeing come back to the oh world God. on January 20th. Yes. Um, but also a real acknowledgement that this person is a human, and I I think that. For all of the for all of the problems that we've talked about with the way that Sorkin writes really romanticized characters, that's something that I'm really down with for this entire run is let us have reverence for what this office is and bear in mind forever and ever that the person in the office is a person Mm -hmm. and that we get to see Jed Bartlett do ridiculous things. Jed Bartlett has a code word for when he's going to go have sex with his wife. Mm -hmm. He makes mistakes and has to apologize to people at points. He gets held accountable as well. He also lies to the country about his health for Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, like there's a, it's a huge human fallibility mm-hmm. that comes into it. And I appreciated that mixture of um, take it seriously, like take the work seriously, but not the people too seriously. Yeah, that was one of the reasons why I couldn't get on board with rewatching it in 2016. The first time I tried was mm. the reverence is so obvious in the pilot. And mm-hmm. it was so obvious in like the pilot of our you know, the season of the Trump show in America that we were getting none of that, that there was no respect for the office. There was no respect for the the off literal or figurative of of the president. Um, And there was no respect for the government or the American experiment or any of these things that I really value and that Mm -hmm. so many people in the country really value. So I couldn't like the just the juxtaposition was too much. Uh, It was too much in 2016. Mm -hmm. But now it's like, yeah, we can have that again. Isn't that amazing? Like that's really nice <laughs> i've got i've got two weird notes that kind of connect to something both of you said one is the reverence the way they light the west wing like a cathedral like a shrine mm. like there's one shot i'm not joking i counted 14 lamps in the shot um <laughs> they just i don't know why i mean i know what they're going i love for. that you counted the lamps i mean look you got to do what you got to do but the way that it's lit and the way the space is put together it's kind of like the catacombs under a cathedral right like it, it makes me think of and then the actual mm-hmm. cathedral itself is when you get up into the capitol building um and, and into the you know the the halls of congress the other thing and it's not here it's not in the pilot at all but it got me thinking about the characters and how evol- eventually we get to know the characters more and their backstories and their complications and relationships the daddy issues in this show mm-hmm. are unbelievable. You can go, Josh Lyman's dad dies during the campaign and there's a scene with Jed. Jed's relationship to his father is a thing throughout the whole thing. Toby's father is a member of the, the Jewish mafia of uh, Murder Incorporated. 
uh, CJ's dad gets Alzheimer's. Like it's on and on. Sam's dad has an affair in, the, in a really one of the really great episodes. I think Amanda put on. Someone's going to emergency. Someone's going to jail. His dad yeah. has problems. Leo's dad, we get told, is you know kind of a good old boy with all that comes in. It's an it's a oh, Charlie's Charlie doesn't have a dad or he has one, but it's not a character. And then his mom is you know we enter the show where his mom has been killed um, in the line uh, as a police officer. And it gives a lot of space to think about, like, what are, what are they all dealing with, right? And I don't want to be too edible because that's bad, but, like, it can't be a coincidence that every single no. person has a daddy issue, right? And I don't know why that is, but it really is striking that even Bartlett, who himself, who is a substitute father for all of them, himself is looking a substitute father, and he can never get it. And that's, like, kind of the show. Um, <laughs> I c- couldn't believe it. I felt like that was always it. an expression like, of Sorkin like, sexism. That, like, no one's mother matters. Yeah. Uh, what is yeah. the West Wing if Sorkin goes to therapy first? <laughs> the Obama White House? <laughs> well, on that note. <laughs> I think that's our show. Jeff hates that. He hates that I just said that. He hates it. <laughs> me? Yeah, you you sighed. You wanted to, like, argue with me. I no, I didn't want to. Oh, okay. I mean, like, I guess all TV shows don't exist if all the characters have a really good therapy experience. Like yeah. that's right. Like that's. that's <laughs> I'm not saying I want that. Yeah, it's just yeah, a yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. The the scenes of someday Rebecca, we'll have to do like a a bespoke episode with all the scenes of therapy in the West Wing, which is an interesting oh. scene of contention. Mm. All mm. I don't have any sense of is this romanticized therapy? It, it, everything's romanticized. Um, when he just like kind degree. of sits there and lets them talk. Yeah, that's true. I guess so. Elliot Gould, Elliot Gould solves PTSD in a day. Is how that happens? Is that what that happened in that scene in that episode? I can't, I can't figure that out. Uh, yeah. Anyway, well, thank you guys. Uh, very, very thank enjoyable. You. Always. Clearly, we could do this for a million years, and maybe we will. <laughs> Talk to everyone later. Bye. What's next? <laughs>